0: Good morning, dear Intriguer, and welcome to Intrigue Out Loud. Intrigue is taking a week off from the newsletter after 162 consecutive weekdays in your inbox. But there's still plenty of news to catch up on from all four corners of the globe. It's all coming up. We start today in Latin America, where voters in Ecuador went to the polls over the weekend. As we've covered, Ecuador is, of course, in the middle of a growing public security crisis. Drug cartels from neighboring Colombia and from nearby Mexico have swarmed the country in an effort to secure control of ports along the Pacific coast and control the lucrative cocaine trade. And the competition between these groups has turned deadly fast. As recently as 2018, there were just 5.7 homicides per 100,000 people. In 2022, there were around 26 per 100,000. That number will almost certainly rise again this year and will include the name of a strident anti-corruption presidential candidate, Fernando Villavicencio, who was killed just two weeks ago. So it's against this backdrop that Ecuadorians went to the polls on Sunday, typically flanked by heavily armed soldiers, and voted to advance two candidates, a socialist named Luisa Gonzalez and a young businessman named Daniel Naboa, to a runoff in October. Most encouraging to me, despite so much turmoil, so many threats of violence, 82% of Ecuadorians participated in the vote. Thailand held elections more than three months ago on the 14th of May and is still without a government. But that looks like it may change today. The political party, Thai, the elections runner-up, has agreed to join some of its rivals in order to form a coalition and finally break the deadlock. Why would they do such a thing? And why is it that the second most popular party, who trailed the leading party by nearly 10% in voting, has the mandate to form a government? Well, because the Victorious Party, moved Forward, which campaigned on plans to limit the role of the all-powerful military and the unimpeachable monarchy in Thai politics, had its bid to form a government blocked last month by the military-appointed Senate. So, enter Thai, which also campaigned against military influence, but now intends to join hands with several military-backed parties – Theotai's plan is opposed by almost two-thirds of Thai voters, but in a political system where sovereignty is derived from an unelected king and from dozens of unelected generals, popularity has never seemed much of a concern. Japan is expected to press ahead with a controversial plan to release about 500 Olympic swimming pools worth of wastewater into the ocean from the Fukushima nuclear plant, which was destroyed by a tsunami in 2011. Releasing the radioactive wastewater, which authorities have treated to ensure it doesn't damage nearby marine ecosystems, is an important part of the government's plan to decommission the plant and has received approval not only from Japanese scientists, but from inspectors at the International Atomic Energy Agency. But some of Japan's neighbors aren't convinced. Last month, China accused Japan of using the ocean, quote, as its private sewer, and then announced that it would maintain a ban on certain Japanese food products and would implement radiation tests on other Japanese food imports. And then South Korea, with whom Japan has been pursuing closer ties, said it was concerned by the water disposal plan. That burgeoning partnership, I mean, we saw it on display over the weekend when President Biden hosted the leaders of Japan and South Korea at Camp David outside Washington, D.C. It's, it's tenuous enough as it is. And if Japan's scientists have miscalculated here and the water is more toxic than they think, again, small possibility, it could spell doom for the plans to solidify relations between Japan and South Korea. And that would be music to China's ears. Last but not least, the leaders of China, Brazil, and India are gathering in Johannesburg for the annual BRIC Summit of Emerging Nations. Russian President Putin will, of course, not be attending in person on account of his arrest warrant from the International Criminal Court. But China's Xi, Brazil's Lula, and India's Modi are all there alongside host Cyril Ramaphosa of South Africa. And among all the questions these men will answer this week about global development, about a potential common currency, and trade relations, the big question is this. Should the BRICS expand? Xi Jinping, who leads the bloc's largest economy, thinks so. He wants to use the forum to challenge the group of seven nations led by the U.S., and he wants to beef it up fast. On the other side of the debate are India and Brazil, who want to expand but only for the right candidate and at the right time. And that begs the next question. Who are the right candidates? Brazil would prefer adding countries based on economic credentials. Russia and China, on the other hand, might like countries who are more ideologically aligned. So, as is so often the case with BRICS, we may be stuck at an impasse. And that's going to do it for me. Here are a couple more headlines to keep on your radar. Zimbabweans vote tomorrow in presidential elections to potentially end the 43-year rule of the country's founding party. And over the weekend, NATO allies Denmark and the Netherlands pledged to send more than 60 F-16 fighter jets to Ukraine in an agreement President Zelensky said would guarantee Ukraine's victory. That's all for now. I'm Ethan Plotkin. See you on Friday.